A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I actually traveled to uh, the Nashville area in Tennessee, literally drove through a blizzard, or I guess what they're calling a snow squall. Didn't know what that was until I drove through it. And so we're driving down to connect with these guys that have been in my life for almost 20 years. These are friends that I had uh, early on in high school, and then we've gone, it's weird that we've gone from this, like, uh, just really immature teenager, uh, just to the bachelor phase, to now married to most of us have up to three or four kids. But every year, about 10 years, no, not 10, about exactly 10 years ago, we started this thing that we jokingly called Man Cave, and it stuck. And once a year, we go out and we reconnect with all of these guys from all parts of the country now and different stages of life and different occupations in life, and just to reconnect for a weekend. And we do a lot of just guy stuff. We just talk and we drink coffee, sit on the porch, shoot darts, play video games and board games and smoke a lot of meat. <laughs> and so we just hang out and so we just do all this stuff. So the first night I get there and James is my buddy and he's a chef. And so he puts on this incredible dinner. One of the funny things that changes is that this is the first year I felt like we ate like adults. Okay, it wasn't like pizza pockets and stuff like that. It was like there were green things on the plate. We're like, our bodies can't take that anymore. Put some vegetables in there. So we had this great meal, okay? And it's just, you know, he did like the saucepan and he like did like the spoon smear, you know, and he put like the, like all these things, layered it, plated it really well, okay? And so we just had this great meal. And so at the end of uh, dinner, I go and start cleaning up with a couple other guys because Jeff or James uh, cooked. And so I just start going cleaning up and cleaning up, and we have a few leftovers. And so I start looking around, start looking around, opening cabinets, opening drawers, looking up and down and stuff. Finally, James is like, what are you looking for? I'm like, where are your containers? Where are your leftover containers? And James says, we don't do leftovers. We're not a leftover family. Now, I cannot express to you how different of a lifestyle that is for me a win. Literally one of the things that when my dad dies, we're going to write in a little memorial of his sayings is make enough for leftovers. <laughs> Do you know how many times we ordered twice as much or made three times as much? My mother is third generation Polish. She taught us that when you cook a meal for dinner, you don't cook just once. You automatically double it, if not triple it or quadruple it. You make enough for the whole week or enough to freeze for more meals to come. We are a leftover family. We are not just a leftover family. It is a way of life for us. And I don't know how you fall on that pendulum of where you're at, but maybe you're a, a cat family or a dog family or a sportsy family or an artsy, a dramatic or a drama family. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're a leftover family or a crazy family. That's the opposite of a leftover family, by the way. It is a way of life. A couple weeks ago, we started with 1 Corinthians 12, 31, which says, But now, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. The last few weeks, we've been studying Paul's words, Paul's definition, Paul's calling to a way of life. And that way of life is becoming and being a community of love. 
It's not a thing we do. It's not a characteristic that defines us. It is the thing. It is the thing that everything else is based upon, is being a people of love or a community of love. So the last couple of weeks, we've studied Paul's definition and understanding. And this week, we're continuing on in the Love You Airy series, a way of life that is best of all. But this week, we're going to start looking at not Paul's words on love, but Jesus' words on love. Amen? If you would, go ahead and put your finger to Matthew 22, verse 34. This is going to be our guiding text today. Matthew 22, verse 34. And it says this, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of, them at, one of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with questions. Teacher, what is the most important command in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Today we're going to dive into the second commandment. We may tackle the first one next week, but today as I was just sitting with this text and thinking about love and sitting with these words, the thing that really caught my attention, the thing that just kept coming back to, coming back to is love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just go ahead and just take a second to pray, to invite God's presence in, to open our minds before we get to the rest of this word. Father, we are just so excited as we just sang and declared with hands raised and one voice, God, to sit and to be in your presence. Thank you, God, for your immense care for me. Thank you, God, how much you care for each person in this room, Father. How you care about every single detail that goes on into our lives. Lord, I pray that you would just have this message, Father, direct and lead it, God. Give clarity of speech and clarity into minds and hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's Jesus. He's sitting in this room, as he often does, in synagogue or someplace teaching about God and teaching God's word. And so all the religious experts of the time would come and try to quiz him or try to learn from him or just try to trap him. And so here we see that the Pharisees, a select group of religious elites, come to Jesus trying to figure out what is the greatest commandment of all. And for us in New Testament, post-Jesus time, this is such a, an easy answer. We all know this. But at that time, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. The Old Testament is comprised of hundreds and hundreds of laws. And so the Pharisees made it a way of life to study the Torah, study the Bible, study the words, to understand it, to enforce it, to be a part of them. So much so that other commentators give the Pharisees the, the legal title of lawyer. And so here Jesus is sitting, being quizzed by a room full of lawyers, on which commands are the greatest, what is the best, in order to ensnare and to trap him, to have him catch up, to try to have something to use against him. Well, if you say that, how do you say that's the greatest versus this one? 
And so can you imagine for just a second, put yourself in the room, a follower, or maybe you just heard, you saw a flyer on the wall, came up on your reel, so you went and checked somebody out, and you're listening to this political, this leader, this person that's radical, and you're just trying to understand, and they, you just, they just ask this kind of bombshell kind of question. Can you imagine the bated breath as they sit there to listen to how will Jesus respond? And Jesus he quotes them scripture. Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Can you imagine just the immense relief? <sighs> the perfect answer. He did it. Great job, Jesus. You did it. That was the best answer. You quoted scripture and everything. That was awesome. But here's the interesting thing as I was just studying this this week is that they asked him one question. What is the greatest command? So Jesus answers that. And then Jesus doubles down. And so if I was in the room, I would almost be like, no, don't go on. Stop right there. You've done it. You've answered them. You've shut them up. Don't, like, continue. Just you've got the perfect answer. But Jesus goes on and uh, enhances or adds more. So he says the greatest commandment is love your Lord your God with everything you have. And a second is equally important. And so Jesus in, pulls a verse out of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book of law, all these things we've been given, and in it is comprised 613 different laws or commandments. So Jesus pulls this obscure one-liner out of Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus expertly weaves this command of loving God and loving yourself out of two obscure places in the Bible and brings them together to answer the question. Not just to answer the one question, but go to a step further and answer what's the second greatest commandment. What's incredible about this, though, is if you stop and think about it, is that Jesus actually uh, raises the second one or elevates it to the position of the first. He doesn't just say, love God with everything you have, greatest commandment. And then the second in line is love your neighbor. He says, the second is equally as important to the first. Meaning that he could say it this way, love God and love people. This is the greatest commandment. He brings it up. He brings the station up. And if you sit and think about that and think about the God we have, that's a radical statement. Because the God we have is the God that says, I'm a jealous God. I demand your attention. You shall have no other gods before you. Don't put anything between us. So much so is that when I said followers would come to Jesus, can I follow you? Give me time to go bury my mother and father. No, let the dead bear their dead. Keep your eye on the plow. Follow me. So much so that he says your love for me should almost be in comparison to your love for family. Like, hey, you should love me with more than anything else in your life. Yet here Jesus is saying that loving your neighbor is equal to loving God with everything you have. How does he do that? Why is that so? And so not only does he do that there, he does it again earlier. So Matthew 7, 12, it says, do to others. And your Bible may have a little quote above this, the, the golden rule, right? Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. 
And so Jesus here, he answers the question expertly. He adds a second commandment. He elevates that second commandment to the level of the first. And then he goes on and finishes the whole passage with this thing. Verse 40, the entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Honestly, I'm still unpacking the meaning of this in my own head. The ramifications of this is just incredible. Jesus lived in a society that was action-based. Jesus lived in a time where you couldn't just come to church and come in and just come unfettered. He lived in a time where that you could make yourself unclean, unworthy. That your actions actually dictated your presence or proximity to God. And that you'd have to go through and sacrifice or go through ritualistic cleaning. You have to have all of these commands on ways that would either qualify you or disqualify you into the presence of God. Yet Jesus is here teaching them there's a way to God, a radical way to God, and it fulfills every single one of the commands. It fulfills the hundreds and thousands of years of the prophetic words that were given. Every prophetic word, every command that were given begins and ends in the essence of love. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8, 13. In verse, sorry, Romans 13, verse 8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the command says, commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others and so fulfills the requirements of God's law. Every action of Jesus, his sacrifice, fulfilled the law. And when we act in love, when we treat each other in love, and when we give our whole heart and unabandoned to God unconditionally, we're fulfilling the biblical mandate of love. It's so easy to come to church, and especially if you've grown up in the church world, to feel like there's this line. that As soon as you cross the threshold of the door, you have to change who you are. Am I worthy to come to church today? I messed up this week. If I come or if they found out, if they know who I really was, they wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't love me. They would actually shun me. They cast me out. And yet here Jesus is saying that who you are, it doesn't matter as much as what you do. It matters a lot more about where your heart condition is. And so that's why when I get into a room with a, a new Christian or a new person, and I focus a lot more on the heart condition than I do in the external. You gotta stop doing this. You gotta stop doing this. You gotta start doing this. You gotta start tithing and moving out and go to blah, 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 blah. And there's so many things that fall in the Christian way. And maybe you've ever felt that. Maybe you felt that judgment of not living up to this internal standard that has been enforced on you or you read in the Bible or you feel like you're supposed to do and you felt like you fell short of it. Or maybe you, on the other hand, have been that one that's exerted that authority over another person and condemned them because they didn't live up to what you know is true. I would say that God loves you and loves me and loves that person exactly where they are. And he loves them enough to move them from point A to point B to point C 
but it is a progressive journey, and love will continue to move you that direction. We talked about last week about haste, that love is patience. You can't hurry somebody's progression. You can't hurry somebody's sanctification. It is a lifelong process. Salvation happens immediately. Sanctification sets in and happens over the course of the rest of your life, of becoming who God calls you to be. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you thankful that you have a patient God that works with you? And so here we have Jesus that asserts these two greatest commandments. Love God with everything you have, but also like it, equally as important, love your neighbor. And so we're going to finish today with how does, how does he assert this? How does he say that that second law, how can we divert even the energy and say that that's equal to loving God? How can he say that? We're going to answer that question at the very end of our time together today. But before we do that, I want to delve a little bit more into this second law of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything hinges on these two concepts, loving God and loving people. Every prophetic word, every command in the Bible hinges on loving God and loving people. And you know what's interesting? In Matthew 7, we just read a little bit ago that rule, do unto others as you'd like them to do unto you. It's interesting that he emphasizes that fulfills the law, but he does not emphasize the first command of loving God with everything you have. There's a link here. There's something that's connecting them to each other. I'm excited to explore that a little bit more. You know, I once had this friend, uh, and they were dating somebody at that time, and their partner, and they had a, a small baby, and she came home from the grocery store or working or whatever. She comes home, and she comes in, and the baby is just screaming, screaming and purple-faced, and the partner's sitting there in front of the TV, and headphones are on, and he's playing a video game. And that mother in that moment just felt so much rage and so much anger that she went over and just ejected the disc, went over the window, slammed it open, threw it out the window as far as she could. And how could you not take care of this little baby? How could you focus on your own wants and desires? How could you do that? And we look at that story, and it's probably pretty easy to be like, yeah, what a terrible person. Like, how could you just sit there and deny your baby? But... I think that story does emphasize something. We've all done this at some point in time of our life. We've all given to ourselves at the sacrifice of others at some point. We don't need to be taught how to satisfy our own desires. We're born with that. It's inbred into us. It's almost an inheritance. We're born with this obsession with ourself. You know, the Gospels go through... Every instance of this, every gospel has this great command and the second one like it. But each one gives a little bit different nuance or different emphasis to it. And Luke, the, the, the religious leader, he goes to Jesus and he never asks, uh, the, 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 it's never questioned that we don't love each, ourselves. We probably really get that. Like we understand that we have an obsession with understanding ourselves and taking care of ourselves and that we're motivated by fulfilling our own desires and wants. The thing he asks in Luke is, who's my neighbor? And the text says to justify his own actions. And so we're born with this idea of we understand what it means to love ourselves. We understand that we have desires and wants and we work hard to accomplish them. And the idea here is that we do and we should love ourselves. 
But right now, there's this new age kind of thought process of this loving yourself. I just want to take a second to just talk about it a little bit. Because even culturally right now, loving yourself is very prevalent. You can go and find blog upon blog or book about self-improvement, podcast, hours of listening about improving yourself. But the kind of base assumption there is that you distance yourself from people that require your attention. You're distancing yourself and putting distance between you or breaking off relationships that require sacrifice. And I get that there's sometimes there's good understanding and boundaries there, that there's toxic or abusive relationships. You need to distance yourself from that. But more often or not, it feels like when this conversation comes up, it's distancing yourself from other people that don't help you get where you want to go. It's more often than not if the relationship is not helping you become the person that you want to be in your career or in your success or in your achievements, then you need to find somebody else that will enhance and help you get to where you want to be. But if you're a parent or if you're a person or you're a human and you've ever spent time with a relationship, you know that that's like the opposite of love. Love demands sacrifice for somebody. I would say that almost every conflict in life is based on you not fulfilling how somebody else wants to feel loved or you not receiving love how you want to receive it. We go to people and we expect them to just fulfill our desires, our wants, and how quickly it is to be offended or hurt when somebody doesn't love you the right way. One of the best premarital advice that I was ever given, we, had, we took premarital counseling, we had pastors and peoples in our lives, we were raised in the church, but one of the best, best pieces of advice I was ever given was just to be honest with your spouse. I do not feel loved today. I need this today. How are you doing today? And when we sit down with people and do premarital counseling with them, we talk about one session on love, and we talk about love language, and we talk about how you have to be brutally honest with your spouse. Once a week, once a month, once a whatever, you need to check in and say, how well am I loving you? And prepare your heart for an honest answer, and then be prepared to give an honest answer. And Amy and I have said that to each other, and sometimes it's like a three. I know you love me, but I don't feel loved. Sometimes it's a 10. But it does fluctuate back and forth, back and forth. But the point is, is that we know how to love ourselves. We know what makes us feel loved. We know what we want. We know what our own desires are. One of the easiest ways to test our ability on how well we are loving others is just to simply be around people. And really quickly, you're going to realize that they don't have the same preference or desire or the want the same things you want. You have to sacrifice what you desire for other people. And so loving yourself is not distancing yourself from people that don't line up with what you want. Loving yourself is, is taking an accurate view of how God sees you and putting it in your head. Because there's a big difference between loving yourself and just being selfish. And I want to explore this idea today a little bit. If I wonder how well we actually love ourselves. We're all born, like I said, with that know-how of to get what we want. A baby, you don't have to teach a baby how to cry. It immediately starts crying. It's the thing we all listen for. But it's crying for comfort, for warmth, for food. 
It knows exactly. Our flesh knows how to just speak out and say what it wants. We know how to be selfish, but do we know how to love ourselves well? I'd actually say that probably a lot of us are a lot better at hating ourselves than loving ourselves. I wonder how many of us have ever felt or stayed awake at night just driven and racked with anxiety or worry or playing over and over and over again a time where you messed up, where you failed, you didn't meet the standard you set for yourself, and you just replay it again and again and again in your head. I wonder how many of us have ever in that moment called and said the most hideous of things to yourself. I wonder how many of us, the worst and most terrible things ever spoken of our life came out of our own lips. I know for a fact in my own life, I have said some of the worst and most terrible things to myself about myself that I would never, ever, ever say to another human. Probably my dog, but never to another person. They don't have souls, it's fine. I wonder how many of us set up this standard of perfection in our life, and as soon as we mess up or don't achieve it, and we're not the person we want to be, that we just start berating ourselves and holding ourselves accountable. I wonder today how well you actually love yourself. I want to do a quick exercise just to emphasize this. And so this is going to require two things. One is that you trust me and that you close your eyes. Not yet, not yet. I see some of you, not yet. And two that you just be honest with yourself. And so this is the exercise. Ten being that you love yourself completely in the best way you know how, and one being you hate yourself, and whatever connotation that comes to your mind, I wonder where you fall on that scale. And so this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes in a second, and I'm just going to count down from ten to one. And as you sit and start thinking of that number, how, where do you fall on that scale from 1 to 10? When I say the number, I'd ask you to just put your hand up in the air. So now if you go ahead and close your eyes, and because this is a moment between you and God, and a self and honest evaluation, not a moment for your neighbor, just close your eyes. Where do you fall on loving yourself right now? So as I say the number, if you just raise your hand. One being hate, ten being love. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. You can go ahead and put your hands down. You can open your eyes. I'd like to share just a little mini sermon within the sermon of a passage of scripture that just changed my life. Psalms 103, if you'd want to turn there. Psalms 103, verse 7. Says this. He made his ways known, he made known his ways to Moses, his act to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This section of scripture changed my life because it changed how I thought of myself. It changed my internal perception of myself. It changed how I held myself to an incredibly high standard and let my berate myself when I fall short of that impossible standard. I love that it starts out with this way is that he made his ways known to Moses. God spent 80 years walking a people with a slave mindset into a freedom mindset. Two generations of people, so much so that they had to do a complete reset and go, everyone that was born in Egypt couldn't enter the promised land because they just couldn't get it. And so how did he treat those people? How, what were those ways? Verse 8 through 14 shows it. It shows that God's merciful and gracious. He's slow to be angry and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't chide us all the time, nor will he keep angry with us forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He casts them as our transgressions, our iniquities, as far as the east is from the west. You know how incredible that is that the Bible says east to the west? If you start going north, eventually at some point you'll start going south. And your north becomes south. But if you start going the trajectory of east, you will never, ever, ever start going west. Do you realize that he's saying is that he's going to throw his transgression as far as the east is from the west because those two points will never intersect. But if you start going north, eventually your north becomes south. And your sin doesn't get very far from you. And he's saying here is that God and his love and God and his benevolence, God and his understanding of who we are, that he is God and that we are people, he holds us to a lower standard than he holds himself. He understands that we are frail. He understands that we will mess up. He understands that you're not going to be God. He understands that you, we need him. And he showed this to the people of Israel, showing them that I will protect you. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will provide for you. I go behind you. I'm in front of you. And so year after year after year, he tries to show his people his heart. Trying to change a mindset that's bent on performance. Bent on the things I can see in front of me. Bent on not trusting things I can't see. And so here God comes and he interacts with us. And why this was so powerful to me is because I realized that I'm holding myself to an incredibly high standard. On that scale from 10 to 1, I probably hover between the 2 to 4. Because I treated myself not as a human being. I treated myself as a God. I treated myself that I should be the perfect person. And every time I mess up, every time a word comes out of my mouth or an action is done by my hand that's wrong and sinful, then I failed. And if that's my perception of myself, how well can I love other people? If actually in my heart of hearts I'm hating myself, how much am I going to be loving other people? And so God started showing me years ago 
that if I, if he, God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, if he's all-powerful God, chooses to forget, chooses to release, chooses to remove the sin that's attached to us and cast it as far as the east as from the west, how far, how, what right do I have to hold on to that myself? What right do I have to try to punish myself, to hold myself according to judgment, try to crucify myself? Jesus died one time, one time, and every single sin, past, present, and future, is bought with that sacrifice, is paid for with that sacrifice. Now take all of that and follow up with Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many times do we try to come to God out of our own strength? When I'm, when I'm better, when, when I actually get through this, you fill in the blank. When I become a better person, when I become a better father, when I become a better brother, when I become a better whatever. How often do we let our sin separate us from God when God's saying, I cast your sin as far as the east is from the west and nothing. I sent my son to come die for you, to come back to me, to come alive, to put his Holy Spirit in you so that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us between us. Yet I try to get in the way of that. I come in and say, well, Jesus, you don't know what I did. God, you don't know how evil my heart is. You don't know the sin that I did. You don't know how I talked to my wife, how I handled my children. You don't know what I said in my heart as I was driving. And I can think I have the audacity, the pride to think that I can disqualify myself. When God says, you are qualified. First John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. And so love your neighbor as you love yourself. It comes to this, not this selfish way of love, but how God loves you. How did God love you? He loved you so much that he kept, he removed every single obstacle between you and him. That he says, yes, I know that you're going to mess up. You're made of dust. You're fragile. You're as a grass that dies, is here one day and dies the next. Comes and goes. But I made provision in a way for you to come back to me. Every single thing you've done is completed in me. Love how Henry Nauman says this. He says, the first love says, you are loved long before other people can love you or you can love others. You're accepted long before you can accept others or receive their acceptance. You are safe long before you can offer or receive safety. Our ability to love other people is grounded in the fact that Christ loved us first. Romans 5, he came at our very worst moment, at a time where we couldn't possibly be in the positive, greatly in debt, and he died for us. How much worse would it have been if he came and died for us when I had already figured it out? Oh, you guys figured a way to salvation? Well, I'll come die for you now. 
No, he came when there was no path back to God. No way back to him. And he said, I'll die for you now. You weren't worthy. You weren't ready. You didn't deserve it. Yet God says you are worthy. You are loved. And I will come and conduct you. Some of us don't well love because we don't love ourselves well. But I pray right now that you would start getting a holy imagination, understanding how much God cares for you. How has God dealt with your your mishaps? How has God dealt with your sin? How has God dealt with your failures? Then let's not stand in pride and think that we can handle ourselves differently than how God handles us. John Piper, on a sermon on this same scripture, he says, and he uses this very graphic metaphor, with this kind of foundation, with this kind of understanding, if you can just pull the skin off of your body and put it around another, with that kind of grounding, understanding how much God loves you is the same kind of weight or emphasis that you must turn to your neighbor to love them. Every desire, every goodwill, every intention, every allowance you give for yourself is how you must turn and direct it to your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Commentator Matthew Henry, he says, It is implied that we do and should love ourselves. There is a self-love which is corrupt, and it must be put off and conquered. But there is a self-love which is natural and the rule of the greatest duty. It must be preserved and sanctified. We must love ourselves. That is, we must have due regard for the dignity of our own natures, and a due concern for the welfare of our own natures. Sorry, and a due concern for the welfare of our own souls and bodies. We must love our neighbors as ourselves, as truly and sincere as we love ourselves. And in the same instances, indeed, in many cases, we must deny ourselves for the good of our neighbor. John 13, 34 through 35. John's approach to this text is this way. He says, so now I'm giving you a new command. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so we've learned right now is that God cares for us. How did he How did he say loving God and loving a person is equal? Because God is love. And every time there's a holy love between you, between God, between your neighbor, God's manifest presence shows up. John Piper continues in his sermon. He says that when you love your neighbor, the invisible becomes visible. The intangible becomes physical. And so this independent relationship, this invisible relationship that you have with God express itself in the connection we have with the people around us. When you love another person, it is loving God because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or present or real or physical among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, 
Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We're going to go into uh, communion here in a little bit. And ushers, if you can actually be ready, and if you do not have a communion cup, just to invite you to raise your hand. We practice open communion here, meaning that if you call Jesus your Lord and your Savior, we invite you to partake in communion with us today. Go ahead and put your hand up if you do not have a communion cup. I see a couple, one over here, one in the very back, one on the side over here. We're going to do something a little bit differently today as we take communion. To start off with, we can actually put worship light on so you can come up on keys. To start off with, I'd like to read through the original text that we started with, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As I'm getting there, you can go ahead and just start taking the very top off. There's two sections, the bread's on top and the juice is underneath it. Jack Hayward, commentator, Bible theologian, pastor, he did this commentary and he said one, of, one way to make 1 Corinthians 3 just jump off the page and come alive to you, one way is to just read it. It's powerful in itself. A second way is to replace every word love with the word I. And a third way to make this scripture just powerful and in your life and in your soul is to replace every word with Jesus. And so with this idea right now of just trying to understand how we love ourselves and how we can love others and how we can push through self-hate, I'd like you just, we're going to read this together. And maybe it'll be on the screen, maybe it won't. If it's not, I'll just read it to you. Actually, I'll just read it to you. That I replace every word with Jesus. And I just want to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 to you. And it says this. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If you can go ahead and pull the bread out. I'll just give a moment of silence right now. I just invite you, if you felt you view yourself through a lens of anything below a seven or an eight on that scale of love, I invite you to read those words again, how Jesus would read them to you. If you feel like you've put up a wall to be loved, I pray that you would ask that Jesus would start tearing that down. If you view yourself with more hate and condemnation than love and affirmation, I pray that right now you would let the Holy Spirit start speaking to your heart of how he sees you.
Lord, right now, God, I pray for any spirit or soul right in here, God, that's just working through this concept, Father. I pray that your mighty love would just start enveloping them, God, overflowing through them, Father. I just pray for a touch of the Holy Spirit right now, God. It's not that we have the ability to love well, God. It's that your Holy Spirit implants it in us to love well, Father. I pray that you would just give us a healthy and accurate internal view of how we should view ourselves and how you view us in Jesus' name. And go ahead and take of the bread and eat. As we move to the juice, I'd ask you to do this. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. As you're sitting today, and if God's bringing two instances in your mind of people that you have not loved well, of times that you've approached your neighbor in hate or in anger or in haste or in anything that's opposite of love, I'd ask that you repent in your heart. Make a commitment to go and make right your wrong. And in a second, we'll receive the juice, which reminds us of the blood spent for us and the forgiveness found there. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, that there is forgiveness found in you. Thank you, God, there's nothing so wrong that we can't find recompense for in you, Father. Thank you, Father, that your blood that was shed thousands of years ago is as powerful at that moment as it is right now. Thank you, God, that your resurrection, Father, gives us the power to live again and with you, Father. I pray you would just walk out of here in the presence and in the freedom that God gives you. You may drink the juice. Allow me to pray just one more time over you before we have a few closing dismissal comments and thoughts about small groups coming up. But if you would, and it's appropriate, if you want to grab, if you came with somebody, if you just want to grab that person's hand, and if you came by yourself, and if you're feeling in condemnation, feel free to just put your hand over your heart today, whether you're in-house or online. But Father God, right now, thank you, God, that you are the God of love. You are a good God. Thank you, God, that it is so sweet to sit in your presence. Thank you, God, that you care for us, God. Thank you, God, that you are greater than our own mind, our own thoughts, Father. Thank you, God, that you are stronger and more powerful, God, than any sin that we've ever done to try to distance ourselves from you. Thank you, God, that is even if we try to run from you, Father. You taught the Israelites you're behind and in front, Father. That you're leading and you're following, God, and that you'll catch up. Thank you, God, that you invite every single one of us back home today. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen, amen, amen. Amen.